Well, I trust you're thankful to be here. I'll ask you to take your Bibles as we return this morning to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We have been, for the past few weeks at least, away from this study as we looked at other portions of God's Word. But this morning we are returning to where we left off last time in the Gospel of Luke, and that means we are at the beginning of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. This morning we will be focusing our attention on verses 1 through 20, which is really the first part of a, a larger section in the Gospel of Luke that goes all the way down through uh, verse 37. But for our time this morning, I just want to read for us as we begin verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first stay, or first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The fascinating account of Jesus Christ's ministry as he's moving towards directionally and resolutely to Jerusalem to accomplish all that God 
has planned in eternity past for the redemption of those whom He has chosen to save. And the question that I have for us this morning as we begin is just simply this. Why are we here? Why are we here? Not, not why are we here in this place, as if I'm asking, why did you come to church today in this building on this day? That's not what I'm asking. But why are we here as Christians on this earth? Why are we still here? Sometimes that's a difficult question for Christians to answer. It should not be. It should not be a difficult question for any true believer to answer. Why? Because the Bible tells us exactly why we are here. We are here as instruments in God's hands for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to all who will hear it. This is one thing we will never do in the glories of heaven. We will never share the gospel with anyone. Because all who are in the glories of heaven with Christ are there because they believed the gospel here. But this is why we are here now. We are here in order to proclaim the gospel. That is simply to say that the sum of our Christian lives, the sum and total of who we are, is not to be motivated by serving us, serving self. We are not to be motivated and permeated by finding our our own likings and our own comfortability here on this earth to be spending our time developing some kind of comfortable life whereby we have all of our likings and all of our comfortabilities here on this earth so that we can last our days till day's end. No, rather we are to be consumed as Christians by the serving of Christ through the serving of others. This is our task. This is what we are here for. And one of the most important ways that we serve Christ is to be advocated messengers, if you will, to be advanced messengers of the gospel, to be those who go forth, to be those who go out ahead. And here in Luke 10, we are introduced to what we might call, and what I've entitled this, is the greatness and the gravity of our mission. What we have here is the first really Christian missionaries who are sent out by Christ in order to preach about Christ. They would go out and they would live a life of self-denial. They would live a life of cross-bearing. And their message would not be one about themselves. They would not be those who go around championing their own advancements, their own causes, their own achievements. No, it would be a message not about their own accomplishments. It would be a message about Christ. A message about who He is and how by faith in Jesus Christ, one could have all of their sin forgiven. One could have the guilt of their conscience wiped away and it could be cleansed so that their relationship with God would be restored. Their message would be the same as we've heard already through John the Baptist. We've heard numerous times through Jesus Christ. The message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Beloved, this is the same message that we must proclaim. This is the same message that you and I today, who are aliens and strangers on this earth, are to preach. We preach the kingdom of God. We preach the kingdom of God who is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one with absolute authority. It is not something else. It is not something that is inside of us that has ultimate authority. It is Jesus Christ who has ultimate authority. He is the only one who can save from sin's penalty. He is the only one who can make mankind right. He's the only one who can restore us with God. He is the only one who can raise the dead soul to be a living soul. And all who enter into that kingdom will submit to the Lordship of Christ. There is no secondary group. There is no partial believer. There is no Christian who needs some kind of second blessing. There is no Christian who can truly claim to know Jesus Christ in which their life is not submitting to Him as Lord, to Him as Master. All who believe upon Jesus Christ willfully come under His authority. And in Him, we receive all the benefits of eternal life. Those who reject Jesus Christ, those who will not submit to Him as their King, as their authority, those who desire to gain some kind of pseudo-salvation by their own efforts, are those who are in the kingdom of darkness. They are of the kingdom of this world They are of a world that lives under the rule and authority of the evil one, as Ephesians tells us, the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. They are slaves of the devil. And so this message that we proclaim is good news. Sinners like us can be freed from the kingdom of darkness. We can be transferred into the kingdom of light the kingdom of the Son of God, which Colossians 1 tells us, and that happens through the forgiveness found only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's in that kingdom that we have reconciliation with God. It is in that kingdom that there is perfect peace between us and God, and there is fullness of joy forever and ever. And so this is the greatness and the gravity of our mission. This is why we are here. We are here to share the joy found in the Lord alone, the gospel of peace that is in Him by faith. And we do that with all the world. And so we see this unfolding here in Luke chapter 10. And I want to I highlight for us as we walk through this seven elements that comprise the greatness and gravity of our mission. Seven elements that are unfolded here, at least, as I've kind of cataloged them, unfolded by Luke, that help us see the greatness and gravity of our mission as Christians here on this earth. I'm going to not get to all seven of them, as you could well imagine this morning. That's 20 verses. I don't want to run through 20 verses. I mean... 
I'm just now starting to learn to run in a physical way. I don't want to sprint now. I don't like running already, so why start now? Right? So element number one is this. Element number one is this, the plan, the plan. Just simply that, God has a plan. Notice verse one. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. I want us just to understand at the outset and make no mistake about it that as we live our own Christian lives, we have not been left here, as I stated even in our beginning, we have not been left here for no reason. God always has had a plan. And I trust that all of us remember what we studied in the previous verses from the words of Jesus as he spoke with those three who had come to Jesus as he was calling disciples unto himself. Remember, we we drew from the text that Jesus boiled it down to two stipulations when it came to discipleship. Disciples are merciful people, and disciples have a complete allegiance to Jesus Christ. They're merciful, and they have complete allegiance. You remember what John was saying as they were going about, they saw someone doing things that that seemed to be the same as what they were doing, but had nothing to do with them, and John wanted to call down fire upon them. Jesus says, that's not your task, right? That's not your task. You need to be merciful. In verse 57 through 62, we get this exacting of discipleship here, this allegiance idea through these three scenarios that you find there referred to in verse 57 to 62. Following Jesus Christ does not mean that we strive to be Jesus. Popular to wear wristbands, and maybe some of us are even wearing them here today. WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? That we're not trying to be Jesus, but we certainly want to live like Christ. And we are actually committed to his life. We are committed to him. That's what a Christian is, a follower of Jesus Christ. We are committed to Jesus Christ. We live like him. And so we must embrace the very conditions that that being with Christ brings. Our attachment to Jesus Christ brings about conditions in our life that maybe sometimes aren't so comfortable And Jesus here lists three different conditions with these people in chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. And in all of them, commitment means allegiance to him. Remember condition number one, you better count the cost of following Christ. Better count the cost of following Christ. Verse 57 through 58, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, Well, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, are you ready for that? Are you counting the cost? You realize following me isn't just going to be some easy road? It's not just going to be something that that you can like willy-nilly take on to you and and it's going to be, oh, life is going to be great. Listen, sometimes you're going to have to go without. You ready to count the cost? In condition number two, Jesus 
said, recognize the immediacy of following Jesus, right? Recognize there's an immediacy in the reality of following me, verses 59 and 60. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Right? Really what he's saying is don't delay. There's no reason to delay. There's an immediacy. There's an urgency in following me, Jesus is saying. There's an urgency in following the call of Christ. And the call upon your life and the call of Jesus Christ to draw you to himself and to cause you to believe in following him, there is no greater urgency than that in life. That's simply to say, beloved, that as Christians, the care for our soul and the care for the souls of others is most important. And of course, we understood when we were studying that text that I told you that his father really wasn't dead. He would have already been gone dealing with that because Jews did that. They didn't waste any time. In fact, they even on the news this morning, even with the trouble in Israel, some Jews who were killed the other day, they were already doing funerals for them. Because Jews didn't wait past 24 hours. They didn't do it then. They don't do it now. So this man really wasn't saying, hey, I, I, my dad's dead. I need to go bury him. saying, listen, give me time to wait. I, 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 it's, it's not urgent enough for me to follow you. And so condition two, we have to recognize there's an immediacy in following Jesus Christ. And then condition number three, no other allegiance can be higher than Jesus. Verse 61 through 62, another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Like the others before him, that person came to Jesus with conditions. I'll follow you, but let me go back, spend some time with those I was with before. Doesn't sound like really all that bad of an intention. Let me go, let me go talk to them. Let me be with them a while. But what we hear from Jesus tells us we better be careful. Why? Because all previous relationships and previous affections can prevent us from entering the kingdom of God. Don't love the old self. Don't love that. There's no turning back. The true disciple of Jesus cannot and will not lay place, lay conditions upon their commitment to Christ. In other words, being the disciple of Jesus Christ is the highest allegiance or it is no allegiance at all. And it says then in verse 1 of chapter 10, now after this, after this, after that exacting, after that, that delineating of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, the Lord now appoints 70 others to go out. Some of your translations may say 72. Earliest manuscripts aren't clear as to which rendering is correct there, whether it's 70 or 72. It really doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the truth of the text as to what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. Jesus, being God, is sovereignly choosing who to send. They're not deciding to go. Jesus is doing that. Jesus is God sovereignly choosing those whom are going to go out. And all of them are true disciples of Jesus Christ. And the question comes, at least in my mind, on a natural sense, why did he choose 70? The text doesn't tell us why he chose, chose 70. 
doesn't say. Luke doesn't give us that answer. That question, Luke just sits there quiet. And the question comes to our mind then, okay, 70, but why two by two? Why did they go out two by two? And then therefore, on top of that, by implication, is that the principle for today? Is there a principle here whereby whenever we share the gospel, should we go two by two? Well, because of time, I don't want to get into all the detailed answer that we could get into because we can get into the weeds on this in all kinds of ways. But what I will say is that I believe it's two by two because according to Jewish tradition and Jewish law, the law of Moses, every evidence was confirmed by witness. In fact, it was by two or three. And here are witnesses. These are witnesses going out, witnessing for Jesus Christ, testifying to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, testifying that he is the Messiah, testifying that they better be ready because he's coming. And the matter would easily be confirmed by the testimony of one who was with them. And so the witnesses that were there gave in each town, the witness that they said in each town would have been conformed conforming to the law of Moses to the people they went to, and it would have been easily verified. And so you can see the unfolding of the plan of God. He is, he is saving, and in doing so, he's preparing those who will receive the word. This is all God doing, right? God's choosing those to go. God is also preparing those who are going to hear. And we today must trust that reality when it comes to evangelism. It's not our work. It's God's. And we don't need to wonder if it is God who will work. Because He is working and He is preparing for the arrival in the hearts of those whom will hear. And we are part of that plan. We are part of that plan. Some people say, well, if God's going to save those whom He saves, then why in the world would we evangelize? Because God designed it that way. God has designed not only the end of who will be saved, but he has designed the means to that end, and you and I are part of that means. So element number one here of this gravity and greatness of our mission is just this. God has a plan, and we need to understand that. We need to remember that. Oh, how many days and how many hours of discouragement we will forego in, in telling others about Jesus Christ, particularly those who reject the gospel when we understand God has a plan. That it's not about me. That it's not about what I say per se. That it's not about how I say it. God has a plan. Number two, element number two is the preparation for this task. You see the plan in Verse 1, the preparation for this task in verses 2 and verse 4. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I just want us to stop there for a minute because I don't believe this was all that Jesus said to them. I think this is only a summary of Luke by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a summary of what is said here. But it's enough. It is enough for us to glean instruction for ourselves and the task at hand that we have as Christian disciples of Christ today. And the first is this. We must work 
We must work to cultivate in our hearts a vision for the lost. We have to cultivate in our hearts a vision for the lost. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, I mean that we are not naturally of our own sinful hearts. We are not naturally bent towards seeing the world as a place that is filled with the lost. This is why we live for ourselves so easily. We don't see the world as Christ sees it. The reason I say that is because of how reluctant the evangelical community seems to be about evangelism. Sometimes we talk about it a lot, but we make it into all these programs and all these little kinds of things, and if I don't say it this way, and if I don't do it this way, and if I don't come up with this, and if I this, and we make all these different kind of hoops that we have to jump through so that we get to the place where we don't evangelize at all. But isn't it right for us to say that if we fully grasp the eternal hellishness of hell, if we fully grasp the place that people are eternally going if they do not know Jesus Christ, then isn't it right for us to say and understand that we would not be so reluctant to share the gospel with others if we understand hell? See, part of the reason we don't share the gospel with others, part of the reason we are overcome in our own selves by our own fears and our own reluctancies is because we haven't looked into the face of hell. Do we have a compassion for the lost because they're headed there? That's what we see in the words of Jesus. A compassion for the lost. He says the harvest is plentiful, Where are the laborers? Where are the laborers? Where are those who will forsake all? Where are those who will take the message of the gospel to the lost? Where are those who see the mass of humanity that they are moving on a moving sidewalk to hell? Jesus says there's only a few out working. Only a few out telling them. And so the question comes, if it's not us, then who? Then who? Christ looks at the harvest and says, pray. Ah, I see the harvest. Christ says, pray, beseech the Lord. Pray while you work. Pray for more workers. Why? Because so many need to hear. I'll ask you again the question I asked at the beginning. Why are you here? That's the first part of our preparation as Christians. Seeing the world as Christ sees it. And asking God to raise up workers for the kingdom. Not while we sit back and don't work, but while we are working. But secondly, verse 4 gives us another side of that. Know, know what he says? Listen to this. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. Learn to trust God for your needs in the process. In other words, no need to plan ahead for what you might be without. You don't need to plan ahead for that. God's supplying. Trust Christ for His provision. 
This time he said, listen, don't even, don't even take money with you. Don't take a bag with you. Don't take extra shoes with you. Don't, don't do any of that. Don't prepare for a long journey. Just trust me that when you go, you'll have what you need. And notice, notice strangely, he says, and greet no one on the way. Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, here you go. You, you plead with God as you're, you're going Right? The harvest is plentiful, the laborers of you. I'm sending you up, beseech the Lord to send more laborers, your your laborers, and but uh, don't greet anybody on the way. You mean you mean Lord, don't be polite to anybody? Don't say hello. Well, obviously that isn't what Jesus is saying. That would go against other where other places where he said they will know you are Christians by your love. In other words, our character says something. The way we respond to people says something. Right? So he's not saying, no, don't, don't just be polite to people. But in the Jewish community, in the ancient Near East, it's natural to get into a very elaborate greeting, a, 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 a time where you're now building some kind of relationship that might be made which keeps you from the task at hand. He said, listen, the gospel's not effective because of relationship. It's good to have relationships. It's good to, to have people you know and, and certainly to share the gospel with them. But, but the God, that's not what makes the gospel effective. It isn't because you're friends with somebody that the gospel's going to work in their lives or it's going to open the door for their heart or, or some other way like that. That's not why it works. Nothing we do makes the gospel work. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God. It's not the power of us. How we say it, what we say, the arguments we use, how clearly they're laid out, all the special ways in which we can answer a question of somebody and and put them in their place theologically and make sure they know that we know the truth. None of that opens the door for the gospel. The gospel doesn't become effective because we're so clever. I think sometimes we get this idea. We get this idea in our theological minds and our Christian minds that friendship is what opens the door to the gospel. Certainly God can use those kinds of relationships. He has. Many of us are here today because a friend of ours told us about Jesus Christ. But those relationships don't enhance the gospel. They don't make the gospel hearable. All of us have had Growing up in families where maybe our parents weren't Christians at all, and we heard the gospel through somebody, or we have in our own homes grown up in Christian homes and we heard the gospel a thousand times and yet it didn't open the door to our ears. It was some stranger who told us the gospel. See, relationships don't enhance the gospel. They don't make it hearable. The gospel is the power of God. It always accomplishes what God chooses. Always. It saves and it condemns. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. And so our preparation is just to trust what God will provide. Trust God in the process. Be in the process, but trust God in it. Element number one is God has a plan. We need to know that. We need to understand that God is saving 
Number two, God has the preparation. God has the preparation. Number three, God's precaution. God's precaution. Verse three says, Go, but behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is God's preparation. Obey and be cautious. Obey and be cautious. There's a command here that cannot be ignored. Jesus says, go. This is the command. You go. And it means go, not just once, but go continually. In other words, this is the makeup of your life. You are a gospel goer. You are a gospel presenter. This is who you are. That is to say, there is no special training needed for you to tell others about Jesus Christ. Now mark that down. I'm not saying that it's bad to have understanding about the things of the truth in the scriptures and to be able to have arguments to people in their places where they say, I don't believe the Bible says that, all these kinds of things. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is you don't need that in order to share the gospel. All you need to do is know Jesus Christ. People need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians are the instruments of that work. So if you've been truly saved by faith, then you can tell others what Jesus has done for you. That's what you're doing. You're testifying about Jesus Christ. You don't need to have all the answers to all the theological arguments that someone might render in your direction and walk away with their chest pounding out and say, see, I put that little person in their place. Who cares about that? You don't save anybody anyway. It's God who saves. You tell them this is what Jesus did for me. All we need to know is that we were blind. And now we see, and it was Jesus that made it happen. But Jesus said to the man, remember in Luke chapter 8, verse 39 and following, Jesus heals the demoniac who was, put chains couldn't even hold that guy. He had so many demons in him. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 39 and following, he says this. is very fascinating to us. I, I tried to highlight it when we were going through it. The man from whom the demons had gone out, verse 38 of chapter 8, was begging him that he might accompany him. Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to, I want to be it with you, side by side with you, uh, walking down the road with you as you minister to other people. I want to be with you. But Jesus, but he sent him away saying to him, no, return to your house and what? Describe what great things God has done for you. Jesus said, no, it's not profitable for you to go with me. I want you to go. Go to those whom you know and tell them about me. Give testimony about what I've done for you. So immediately, because Christ is now Lord of his life, he goes away. And he proclaims through the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Isn't it interesting that Luke even in that passage, tells us that Jesus is God. Because Jesus says to the man, go and tell everybody what God has done for you, and he goes away and tells them what Jesus has done. All that man knew was the reality of faith in Jesus and new life from Jesus, and that's what he went and shared with others. 
It's all he knew. And so the question is not how much do we know, but rather will we be obedient to the Lord and go with what we do know? That's the question. And then again in Luke chapter 10 and verse 3, Jesus says also be realistic. Go, but, but behold this, right? Watch this. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Be realistic. Gospel ministry isn't some kind of pie-in-the-sky endeavor. And I think this is what frightens us sometimes. We, we, we actually realize it. We know that. There's rarely a pat on the back. Rarely does somebody go, hey, thanks for sharing that with me. No, we're lambs in the field of wolves. So while being like a lamb, while carrying yourself with humility and meekness like a lamb would, be vigilant. Why? Because hostility is around every corner. You're in the midst of wolves. In other words, persecution's inevitable. But, but know that you're protected. You're protected by the great shepherd of the sheep. He is accomplishing His work in and through you as a lamb, even if that means you are martyred for the cause. Even if that means in your gospel witnessing, He removes you from this place. Oh, beloved, God has a plan. He has a preparation. And He has given a precaution. Number four, God gives the provision. God gives the provision. Verses five through eight, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. So stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you for the laborers worthy of his wages. Don't keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, Eat what is set before you. It's obvious. It's obvious. He's warning them. Preaching has its troubles. Proclaiming the gospel has its trouble. Why? Because truth does that. Truth brings division. Truth divides. Truth is unbending. Truth is uncompromising. Truth always says it's either my way or no way. And some receive it and others do not. Notice the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot out there that need to be harvested. But certainly there's a lot more that do not. With reception of the gospel comes peace. Someone receives the truth. You share the truth with them. They, they embrace the truth of God. They, there's peace. There's peace among you. They, they don't want to be your enemy. They want to be your friend. And yet with rejection, there is often persecution. Jesus tells those whom he's sending, remain with those who are receptive. Remain with the receptive ones. Whatever house you enter, say, peace be to this house. In other words, that's what we bring in the gospel. We bring a message of peace. That's what we're saying, peace be to this house. If you receive it, there's peace. We bring a message of peace. And we're seeking those who have an interest in the message of peace. Why Jesus says in verse 6, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. 
But if not, it will return to you. Sometimes it returns with a slamming of the door in our face. Stay in that house. Eat and drink there, whatever they give you. Why? Because the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't keep moving from house to house. In other words, the gospel has a home with those who desire to hear it. That's the idea. The gospel has a home with those who, who, who are willing to receive the gospel. A son of peace. In the ancient Near East, that's a cultural way of saying that the person is receptive to the message of the gospel. They're receptive to the message that you bring. And yet, if the message is rejected, Jesus says, move on. Move on. Sometimes we, we, we want to stay and just pound the argument. Listen, if they're receptive, great. If they're not receptive, move on. Go to others. Why? Because God is the provider of those who will receive. We're not trying to be unkind. We're not saying be rude and you're moving on. But don't try to produce something where God isn't producing it. You can't do that. You can't manufacture reception. That's why I said it doesn't come by clever arguments. It doesn't come in ways in which we have some creation of comfortable environments. What we do is simply go, we speak the truth of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, we trust God for His provision of both those who will be receptive to it and remaining with them as long as they hear. Want to hear the truth? I'll talk to you about the truth. Don't keep moving from house to house. Stay there as long as they're willing to hear. And so Jesus says to these disciples, don't move on. Don't seek a better place. Don't seek a better receptivity. Just stay there with those who are receiving and, and eat whatever they provide you and trust the Lord. You say, what's the point? Well, one point is this. True gospel preachers aren't concerned with what the ministry might get them. True gospel preachers don't go around and go, hey, guess what? There were 22 people that I saved today. They're not interested in all of that kind of stuff. They aren't in it for some personal advantage. That's what false teachers are in it for. That's what false preachers seek. In other words, doing what Jesus commands, doing what he's saying to us, demonstrates the integrity and honesty of the messenger and their message. You're not just going to hang around with people who can give to you some kind of accolade. You're just simply staying with those who will receive it. Why? Because you trust the Lord's provision. It's not about you. Yeah, I trust as we are walking through this, we're drawing implications for our own life. We're thinking about our own Christianity, our own life, our own spheres in which God places us, where God has called us as Christians to be going and sharing the gospel. I trust we're thinking about that. So God has a plan. He has the pre preparation. He has given the precaution. He gives provision. And in element number five, the proclamation. The proclamation. Verse nine, and heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We all have a gospel ministry. That's the idea that we're talking about here. 
And part of the 70s ministry was to heal the sick. We don't have that today. No one has that today. Why? Because we have the Scriptures. The Scriptures authenticate our message. But Jesus, before the Scriptures were cataloged for us, the New Testament had the they had the Old Testament. Now, before the New Testament was fully inscripturated, Jesus equipped them with miraculous powers to authenticate they were from God. It came with credentials of divinity, if you will. And so through the healing of people, they knew without a doubt that these men were from God and this was his message. In fact, Jesus was saying to them, you need to go to every city and place where I am going to come. You're preparing the way for them to see me, hear me, and receive me. We don't, have, we don't need to do that. We have the scriptures authenticated. So the proclamation of the kingdom of God, we just proclaim it and we go to the scripture and say, here's Jesus Christ. In other words, the Messiah is here. It's Jesus. And so we can know this, to welcome the kingdom was to welcome Jesus. You welcomed Jesus Christ, you welcomed the kingdom. To reject Jesus is to reject the kingdom of God. It's that easy can't have a relationship with God without Jesus. You can't be in the kingdom of God without Jesus. You reject the kingdom of God, you've rejected Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you reject the kingdom of God. And the consequences are severe. We're not going to get into those today, but you certainly notice from verse 10 on, it's, it's woe to you who reject. It's severe. And so all I want us to go away with today is this understanding that the mission that we have is, is, is great and the gravity upon us is, is great. God has a plan. He has the preparation. We know the precaution that trouble can come. And we know that He gives the provision. So it is Him that we proclaim. It is Him and Him only that we proclaim. The question that continues to come to my mind each and every time I read a text like this, is the statement that Jesus makes, which is recorded for us in John chapter 14, verse 15. You can just write it down. I'll read it for us this morning. Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we go to the question we started. Are we going? Are we going? We say as Christians, and I'm talking not only to us here, but the evangelical community at large, we say we love God. We say we love Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we'll keep His commandments. And Jesus says, go. So are we going? And if not, why not? And more importantly, what are we going to do about it if we're not? We're not one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. But we are one of the many whom God has saved. And thereby, since He saved us, He has also sent us, if we truly know Him, as our Savior. 
And so we have a message to share. We have a gospel to share, and we must be sharing it to the lost. The harvest is plentiful. If fear is keeping us from that, then we need to ask a real question of ourselves before God in our hearts. What is it that I love more than Jesus? What is it that I love more than Jesus? Beloved, this is the greatness and the gravity of our mission. We love him and keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, I feel like while we're working through a larger text, we've been running at rapid speed. I trust that we have grabbed hold of the essence of what you have taught us here through this accounting of you sending out these who would go and share the gospel. We will see that they find great joy in what you have accomplished. And oh, what joy it is. The Lord, help us this morning in our own hearts to rejoice in the reality that we've been given this great privilege to share the gospel and yet be challenged in our own hearts Make edits where they're necessary in our life where we're not following after you. Let us read through this text. Ponder it. Think through it. Think about us in our own life here and now. Lost is all around us. Help us to be faithful to you to share the gospel with them trusting that you're the one who saves them, draws them to yourself. Father, thank you for the privilege of just opening our mouths to be that instrument. May we be faithful to that task as we love our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.